I want to go to there. Snipe! Hi, for those of you who just tuned in, everyone here is a crazy person. Are we having fun yet? <laughs> yes, yes. 30 Helens agree. Never mind. Maybe the dingo ate your baby. It's a cunning plan, actually. Would you believe it? And you beautiful tropical fish. Don't mention the war. Clear eyes, still hearts can Hello and welcome to the Televerse, Sound On Sight's TV podcast. This is Kate Kolsick and I'm joined as ever by Sean Coletti. Sean, it's, uh, I, w- I ask how it's going, but it's been kind of a shitty week again. Lots of unrest and unhappy things happening in the, uh, in the news. Um, let's just focus on the TV-related ones. So we're going to start, unfortunately, with the sad news of Robin Williams' death. Um, obviously, I shouldn't say obviously because we've never talked about it previously but i'm a big fan of rob williams his his dramatic and his comedic work um and he has plenty of of really remarkable film and tv credits what stands out to you in his entire career yeah or just him he seems like he was a really he touched a lot of lives he really did and um i think philip seymour hoffman was the first celebrity death where i was like legitimately upset because he had touched my life in some way and Robin Williams comes shortly after unfortunately and he was one of the few people who you know I can quote a line vaguely or from Hook um, which is one of his best and most magical roles for me and he's uh, giving a speech about Granny Wendy and about how she kept orphans and all of that and, you know, he might not know everybody else in that room, but they had all been touched by her in some way. And then all of the former orphans stand up and applaud her. Uh, it's very much the same thing with Robin Williams. You know, he and I might not have had anything um, in common, as it were. Uh, and we never certainly knew each other, but absolutely touched by him in, in so many ways. Um, we even shared the same birthday, which was really cool, July 21st. And... He's going to be sorely, sorely missed as a performer, as an entertainer, as a comedian, as a dramatic actor, because he ran the gamut of everything that you could ever expect out of somebody involved in Hollywood um, and did it with utter grace and was just impressive as a human being um, and a performer on every level. So it's really shitty how things happened, and it's a huge loss, I think, for the entertainment world. Definitely. And, I mean, it should also be noted uh, aside from all of his fabulous work in film and television and comedy, he also was a big part of Comic Relief, which raised, I saw earlier, $50 million for charity. So he was very involved in other things, other aspects, you know, of our community as a, as a country and as a world as well. Um, so wanted to make sure to mention that. But for me, with uh, Robin Williams, I, I, there are many of his performances that I have very fond memories of. Uh, Fern Gully was a staple of my childhood for, for quite a while there. And Batty, of course, was a big part of that. Um, but I also have a lot of gaps in my Robin Williams uh you know, history of what, what of his work I've seen. And I very much look forward to catching up with Mark and Mindy because I've seen very little of it. I've enjoyed what I've seen, but, I, but that's a gap for me. So that's going to be one that when I do go back and see some of it, as I'm sure 
I will. It'll be a little more bittersweet. Um, but obviously, you know, some of his films like Good Morning Vietnam or um, or, or everybody, I'm sure everybody's oh, Captain My Captaining with Dead Poets Society. But I mean, I think of more like What Dreams May Come and some of his more dramatic work. One of the big ones I look forward to catching up with um, that I've always heard is amazing is The Fisher King. And that's kind of, for me, that's the one that I think I'll go to next when I have some time and it's not quite so fresh, um, is catch up with the Fisher King, catch up with Mark and Mindy, and really just keep thinking on, on, on these performances. Obviously, there's several performances of his that maybe we're not the biggest fans of, or films like Patch Adams say that, uh, you know, maybe I'm not gonna you know, immediately run to those, but he always seemed to bring such energy and life to to his roles and to uh, the, the projects he chose. Like something like Death to Smoochie probably doesn't happen if Robin Williams isn't interested in, in making it happen or, or being involved with it. And then just to think about his TV appearances there before the crazy ones and after Mork and Mindy, there weren't a lot. But, I mean, really memorable turns on Wilfred, on Louie, some of these shows that we really enjoy. Um, and I know when he popped up for me on Wilfred, it was the first big guest star they had. And it was it was sort of out of nowhere, but it was such a delightful performance and such a wonderful surprise. So lots of great work. And I think he was really good on The Crazy Ones over this past year. It didn't get renewed, but uh, I, I don't think that was because of him. And it looks like everybody involved was having a really great time on that show. So uh, at least there's... You know, some recent work of his that we can enjoy, as well as all of his fabulous work from the, you know, the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s. Yeah, his uh, Louis episode is one of the episodes that I used to introduce people to Louis. Uh, he had one of the best guest performances on the Whose Line Is It Anyway, I thought. And just to add to the, the film roles that you've mentioned, certainly Goodwill Hunting, but just because I rewatched it again recently, he, in a long line of impressive ridiculously impressive voice uh, castings you know he brought a character like the genie in Aladdin to life in a way that is so very rare so that's that's certainly going to be one of his lasting roles I think for the next hundred years yeah kids everywhere right we everybody loves the genie I mean come on he makes Teddy Roosevelt in Night at the Museum Look, you know, see a valid option as a comedic choice. I mean, that's 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 awesome. It's wonderful. So, we're just going to focus on the positives uh, left behind by this truly gifted man. Um, but on to cheerier topics. Anything a bit more cheery of note this week, uh, Sean? Uh, give me some positive news about this past week. Uh, yeah, no, I got to take a road trip with a couple of my friends up to the Pacific Northwest and visit Seattle and Portland. Yeah, and just a, a shout out to uh, Les Chapel from the AV Club, who has been on This Is Our Design and the Televerse as well, and got to hang out with him and talk some TV over some nice drinks at an awesome uh, whiskey bar that had an amazing selection of bourbons that Kate would just never drink. Yep. Um, but uh, yeah, we also got to talking about some future ideas so fans of banshee be on the lookout because there may be some announcements of things when season three is upon us Ooh, i'll have to get caught up so i can follow along with announcements <laughs> so i spent this last weekend doing many things it was my first weekend off in a very long time uh i can i literally cannot remember the last weekend 
that I haven't had some sort of commitment work or family or something. Uh, and so I, I just chose to spend it. I was going to get a bunch of work done and then I woke up kind of feeling under the weather. So what kind of a day was it? It was a network procedural marathon kind of day. So I've now seen a season of person of interest. Uh, I've seen season two and you're a fan of the show. Yes. Yeah. I, I would definitely say I'm a fan. Yeah. And I am now a fan too. They won me over. It took about like, 10 episodes for me to get fully on board and only if I was feeling under the weather would I have given it 10 episodes to get me on board uh, but I really have come to very much enjoy the show and I look forward to catching up with season 3 pretty soon talked with a bunch of you guys about Person of Interest on Twitter any overall thoughts on Person of Interest Sean? Um, so you, you watched season two, right? I watched season two a little bit. I watched the season one finale and I've seen the first couple of season three but uh, I've mostly I just watched season two I think that you're doing it absolutely right. Um, it definitely took a little while to get going, and not that it became one of the best procedurals on TV, but I think it, it has the potential to really get there. And there are some episodes in season three that are there, so there's certainly highlights ahead, and it's one of the few CBS shows, I think, that kind of demands watching right now to some extent. The thing I keep coming back to for the show is, first of all, their casting in general, just or I, I should say this specifics of their casting like who they're bringing in i really enjoy I, I most of the you know what other show right now brings ken leung on four times if he's not a regular i, I you know I, that's a fun character but i really enjoy that actor as well um but in the more more broad sense i also love that everybody in the show feels like an adult there's a bunch of badass secret agent cia fbi former military types on this show, but they're all in their 30s or older. I love that their Terminator kind of guy looks grizzled and looks like he's survived many, many things. And usually on shows where they bring in badass super spies, they're all sexy and young. And so I just, I'm very glad. Well, I'm, and that is not to say that the super spies they bring in in their 30s and 40s are not, are not looking damn good too, because of course they are, because this is television. But just there's a maturity to the show in general that I really appreciate. It feels like all of these characters have experience in life. They've been through some shit. And uh, that is one element of the show that I feel like not a lot of shows uh, maybe catch on to in a way that they should. Yeah. And all of the central characters are interesting in some way. So, and it, and it feels like it's a, a cog that's working very well. Um, so yeah, like I said, I'm, I'm a fan. I've not seen every episode, unfortunately. So this might be one that I'll probably, um, finish up during the rest of the summer, hopefully, but certainly a solid show all around. Yeah. And I got to get credit to Depayan for wearing me down and Todd <laughs> Vanderwerf, uh, for, for finishing off Depayan's work at, at, uh, at Comic-Con and getting me to agree to watch the rest of the show because I am, I am now glad that I have and I will watch Utopia soon guys speaking of I did uh, throw out to Twitter what are the shows that I should be watching that or that we should be watching in general the populist TV populist what are the underappreciated shows that in a few years are going to be the next Spartacus or the next Ben and Kate or the next Bunheads kind of a thing and I got many different options I'm just going to throw out some of them a lot of love for you're the worst I heard from like four different people that they feel like a really underappreciated show is You're the Worst. And we'll talk more about that when we get to the comedies. But uh, Arrow, which I may give another shot to. There is not a show on TV that I have given more shots than Arrow. 
So I keep thinking I'm wrong and that y'all are right and that so suddenly I'll like it. So may I I think I'm going to give it another shot in the fall even though I just don't Anyways, I think that's kind of hilarious that I keep assuming I'm wrong. Um then we have Goldberg's chosen trophy wife even though it's canceled. Um Shameless, Purse of Interest, Bates Motel. Has Bates Motel gotten better? Are you watching Bates Motel? Yeah, you're not not the biggest fan. I I'm I'm just nope. going to speak for you there. Okay. Yeah. It's it did get better in its second season, but it's still a mess. So. And that one I have some I still have really strong issues with its pilot, so I don't know. That that's going to be lower on the list. Um but Banshee, which I very much I fully intend to catch up with, Vikings, Defiance, some love from Defiance from a couple different people, The Divide, which is on I want to say that's on We but um, but that's one that I'm hearing some interesting things about. Suits, Playing House, Cedar Grove, and The Killing. What is Cedar Grove? I've never heard I, of this. Yeah, I've not seen it. It's only been around for a couple of years, I think. I don't even know what channel it airs on, but uh, it's got uh, Andy McDowell uh, as the lead. I don't really know anything about it, but it's also been one that's kind of been recommended to me once or twice. Yeah, and then the last one uh, that I'll mention is In the Flesh, and that's, of course, because we're big fans of In the Flesh, and we've talked about it all summer. So uh, we're, I'm with you, person who suggested In the Flesh. Um, then Carl said wanted to thank us because he, he's now rectifies one of his favorite shows um, through our recommendation. He checked that out, and I'm very glad because, of course, we love it. Latoya was talking about Francie and Will shipping on Alias, and so we talked a little bit about that. So much fun. How important to you is a ship in a show? having a ship that you're invested in? Well, if it's actually got me invested, so it's it's done its work in a way that I don't find like uh, manipulative or ridiculous, then then it's good because I think that's something useful to latch onto. I don't know. I, I think a love story is pretty much inherent in almost every narrative if it lasts long enough, and it's usually something that, that I, as a reader or a viewer, can gravitate to, so... Um, I like seeing people together and happy. So if they're both characters that I like and that I think that it's something, you know, worth pursuing, um, I mean, if I, I could talk endlessly about Oliver and Felicity and why why that needs to happen. <laughs> That's Elicity, right? That's yeah. the the ship name. Yeah, a ship is a powerful thing, and I don't think I, some people feel like it's not legitimate. Or I know there's a lot of I, I, amongst the critics I've talked to, at least there's sort of the sense of um, guilty pleasure about enjoying a ship on a show or enjoying that part of the show the most, I think it's completely legitimate. Um, as long as you're not faulting the show for going a different direction than you, maybe your little ship or heart desires. Um, I think it's, I think it's totally legitimate and there's no reason to feel bad or, or like you're not being critical enough if, uh, if you're watching a show for a ship. Anyways, a uh, few thoughts on Aaron shipping. Uh, but also we heard from at the website, Jim, who said, good podcast, but why wasn't True Blood or Extant in the genre section? And because we hadn't watched them yet, Jim, last week. Uh, Extant, I, I'm not breaking up with Extant. It's just fallen so much down the list of, of shows that uh, I need to get to that often I just don't have a chance to catch up in time. I don't know. How, how do you feel about Extant right now? Uh, it's about the same. Yeah, it's just been unfortunately busy the last couple of weeks. And so some of these, I think, are going to fall to the wayside here and there. But uh, we'll make a concerted, I'll, make, I'll try to make a concerted effort to, to get back with some of these so that we can 
talk about them a little bit more and also um, something like The Killing I hope to talk about next week as well. With new shows starting up, The, the Nick and Outlander, and in a couple weeks here, Doctor Who and Intruders, um, the next big wave of shows will be in September. But for right now, until some of these shows start ending, there's just too many interesting shows for us to keep track of all of them in a given week. And that's a good problem to have. Hopefully we will um, be able to catch up with some of these shows as the other ones start ending. But uh, but if we didn't talk about it, it's not because we have a problem with it. We'll let you know if we do. But, uh, but, but mostly it's just because there's too many things to keep track of all of it at once uh, right now. Augustine also commented at the website and said, It's funny, Kate, that you said Partners reminds you of a 90s sitcom because one of the creators is Robert Boyette. Now, if that name sounds familiar, just remember shows like Full House, Family Matters, Step by Step, etc., which he was involved with. Uh, now, I did enjoy those shows back in the day, but it won't get me to watch Partners. Are, did you watch Partners? No, I I really wanted to, but there were other things I needed to do first. So yeah, like breathe or watch paint dry <laughs> or that's the right call. You're encouraging me here, Sean, with your decision making. Yeah, oh, I'm also dropping Rising Star coverage, so that's that's done. Yeah, it's over. There's just there's not enough time in life for those shows. So, uh, yeah, that, that is, that's good to know, Augustine. And, and the reason that, by the way, the reason that partners exists is it's one of those, those 10 90 shows where if they get enough ratings in the first 10, then it back immediately get 90 episode order, uh, or a pickup for 90 more episodes to get them to the magical syndication number of, of 100. Um, and I, that's, I would be astonished if partners happened. The St. George was the, the previous one and that did not make it to its 90 episodes. Uh, it's, it's next 90. And I don't think partners is going to make it either. That's why it's so cheap because there's no money and they don't basically don't care what it looks like or what quality it is. They're just trying to get enough people to watch it to make the very low budget makes sense to have 90 more. So yeah, just don't, don't do that. We don't need 90 more episodes of partners. So don't watch it. <laughs> I wanted to mention eat the Rudecast, which is a new Hannibal podcast. I shouldn't say new. They're on episode six, I think of the first season they're going through and doing episode by episode reviews, sort of like we do with this is our design. Um, but uh, I've been meaning to check them out for a while. I finally uh, was able to, to do that this week and really enjoyed myself. So if, you, if people are out there looking for, uh, Handle podcast. Uh, aside from this is our design, which is of course the one that Sean and I do, they should check out Eat the Rudecast. Lots of great, especially I love their discussion of colors. They're like they get into the nitty gritty of colors in a way that I look forward to learning about from their podcast. So, yeah. Any thoughts? Um, I've been I've not listened to all the episodes yet. I'm trying to catch up, but yeah, the ones that I have, I think I've listened to about four of them. It's been very enjoyable because you know they pick up on stuff that we don't necessarily know too much about, and vice versa. So. It's good to have a variety out there, and for fans of This Is Our Design, I will say that those episodes will, again, be coming out soon. Uh, this is entirely on me. I've been very busy, uh, and maybe in some instances lazy, uh, but blame me, because Kate has done all of her work already. She's prepared eight of the episodes. I'm I'm just a piece of garbage, so. <laughs> that is one way to put it. I would say you are a person with a life and things you have to do like work and this free content that you're providing uh, <laughs> does not go before work or sleep at certain points. And hopefully we will continue to get those out. We, we are going to finish out the season and finish recording it within the month. And hopefully those episodes will continue to come out on a regular basis for you guys. But just 
Sometimes life happens, and that's been the case recently, so hopefully we'll get those back out to you guys soon. Uh, the last thing I'll mention here is that I was a guest on the TV Times 3 podcast with, of course, friend of the podcast, uh, Jason Griffin, the TVaholic, and then also this time uh, Kyle from No Reruns, so you guys can check that out at tvtimes3.com or just you know Google it and it'll come up. We talked a little bit more about it. was It was fun because... Um, of the three of us, there was, I think, maybe one episode that all of us had seen. It was sort of a last-minute fill-in situation where they don't – most of the, most of the shows that I watched, the, one of the two had seen but not the other one and vice versa. So there's Defiance and Dominion talk, but I'm not up to date on those. I talked about The Strain and a few other shows with them Um but it was it was a it was a good time. So you guys can can just check that out at TV Times Three. Also, at the end of the podcast, uh, again, the DVD shelf is on a hiatus because I'm finishing up the Comic Con Composer Roundtables this week. You'll hear um, my conversations with Jeff Russo, the composer of among other things Fargo, um, the the TV show, I should say. James Levine, who among other things is the composer for American Horror Story and Glee, and Christopher Young, who's primarily a film composer but also scored the uh, Dominion pilot and. Yeah, Spider-Man 3, some many other interesting films. So those will be coming at the end of the podcast. Next week, we'll either have some Hannibal roundtables or uh, we'll, we'll be back to the DVD shelf. Uh, the, it, sound quality becomes an issue. I would love to share my Hannibal uh, uh, roundtables with you guys because there was some fun discussion there. But I have to determine whether or not you can actually hear it. Uh, so for now, um, plan on the DVD shelf coming back either next week or the week after. But all of that out of the way, let's get to our week in TV. And we'll kick things off with the comedies right after this. We control the balls. We control the balls. From Birmingham to Montreal. We control the balls. Guys, I figured it out. We control the balls. Now he gets it. Oh, you guys. <laughs> Our lives are filled with miles of fun, but there's nothing like a First up this week are the comedies, and we're going to kick things off with Garfunkel and Oates, which had its pilot, The Fadeaway, this week, and then we'll go to Adventure Time, Nemesis, Gravity Falls, The Gulf War, Married, Uncool, You're the Worst, What Normal People Do, and Wilfred, Courage. Uh, the finale for Wilfred is coming up next week, so I know we'll probably spend a little extra time on it next week. But for now, we're kicking things off with Garfunkel and Oates. And I talked a little bit about this last week. Uh, Sean, what did you think of this pilot? Having no familiarity with Garfunkel and Oates as a duo before this, I completely bought into it almost immediately had a lot of fun with this. Uh, I think the last IFC premiere I had seen was Marin, and that was less than engaging. And this one, right from the beginning, I thought was a whole lot more fun. So I, I enjoyed the two leads very much in this pilot. I thought there were some really great gags. Uh, each of their characters' acting reels were hilarious. Um, the one thing I might point to, though, is the integration of the music. I... I'll need a couple more episodes before I can like make a proper comment on that because I don't know how I felt about it in this episode. Yeah, it, they don't attempt to make it seamless at all. It's not, you know, diegetic music or anything. It's just, and now we're singing. Yeah, um, yeah. It, it's 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 kind of variety show ish in that way. Um, except obviously, it's not a stand and sing. It's it's like a music video it becomes a music video. Um, so yeah, I I think you know. 
Uh, I think you'll like the second episode, which I've only seen the first two, but I thought the second episode was better than the first. So if you'd like this one, I look forward to your thoughts about that one. And it's hard to know with these early shows if it's, if you need to get used to the show and then after a couple episodes it feels natural or if it's just a little awkward in general. Yeah. Yeah, and that's probably the the thing that I'm most interested to see going forward. I thought Ben Kingsley, I don't know if this is a thing about the second episode that they're going to bring in more guest actors that are hilarious, but again, Ben Kingsley was very, very good in his scene, I thought. Yeah, there's some there's some fun guest stars next week that I think you will enjoy. Um, but I will leave it there because, uh, you know, spoilers. Any other thoughts? Uh, hey, two thumbs up. Two so, thumbs up. Always good to see successful comedy pilots. Absolutely. And like we've said, they're hard, right? This is a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Next up is Adventure Time Nemesis. And as the I noticed the tweet from the AV Club for their review for this one, and I hadn't watched the episode yet, but it instantly made me intrigued, which was, don't mess with Peppermint Butler. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Peppermint Butler. Pep Butts, what'd you think? He was brutal. I, I thoroughly enjoyed this episode, but it made me feel kind of sad and almost sick to my stomach what happens to... The children? Uh, the children, yes. Peacemaster's children. And it, it was such a really good character design as well, which I know is a superficial element, but it's one that can contribute a lot, I think, especially when uh, it's a semi-children's cartoon. But um, yeah, I, this was, again, two thumbs up for this one. Um, it had really good dramatic elements and really good comedic elements, which is very difficult to do. Yeah, I enjoy this, you know, and again, I still haven't seen any really of season five. Uh, that's the next thing once DVDs come out. Yay. I'll be able to catch up with season five, but uh, the episodes that I missed at least, but um, there's, to my knowledge, with what I've seen, there's just sort of this just background information that Peppermint Butler is like, besties with the devil and stuff <laughs> like he's just evil he's just like straight up evil and he's spending his time you know just being the kindly butler to to princess bubblegum and she doesn't know we don't think um though there's some really delightful big brother stuff with her as well one of the things i really enjoyed about uh last week's princess day that i don't know if i mentioned or not was that um it's focused on staying with that subset of characters but even in this episode, with just like the one scene with Finn and Jake, and also the couple that we get with Princess Bubblegum, even that structure worked really well because those scenes were funny. Uh, so, Adventure Time just does like every narrative uh, conceit really well somehow. Yeah, it's it's a wonderful world, and it's pretty remarkable the way that they've been able to to flesh it out and really maintain their momentum now going into. Uh, what will be season seven after this year. But I like also on Wikipedia, when you look up the number of episodes, it says between 13 and 26 or no, between 26 and 52, I think it is uh, something like that. Cause apparently we don't actually know how many episodes the season will have at some point. Season six will end and then there will be a season seven. And that just makes me happy. But uh, any other thoughts on adventure time? Uh, that's about it. Well, let's follow up Adventure Time here with Gravity Falls, The Golf War, uh, our, our little uh, animation twofer here. What did you think of this episode? And uh, a little compare contrast here with, with Adventure Time. Which of these animated shows is connecting with you more? Oof. Oh, man, that's difficult, actually, because 
even just these two episodes are very, very different. And maybe not representative of what I've seen from both of them. So uh, the Gulf War plays down a lot of the supernatural elements in Gravity Falls. And there I think are tiny Gulf people. <laughs> yeah. But How like, is that playing down? <laughs> it's not like this massive, I don't know. Um, it, it's not on the scale that I think I'm used to with Gravity Falls. So it, it, it felt very much more like the, the competition between Mabel and... Uh, Pacifica. Pacifica, yeah. So... Um, that was the, the the golf balls were just kind of on the periphery. Um, I think I think Gravity Falls might be connecting more with me right now, but that might just be because of its absence. So maybe in a few weeks after we settled in, uh, Adventure Time will turn out some more strong episodes. But uh, yeah, no, this one was was great. Um, Mabel is such a good character. She's so funny and so fun, and this was a really good highlight for her. I did enjoy that character. Also, very much enjoyed Patton Oswalt as yes. uh, as Franz. <laughs> yeah, I and also every episode, Seuss gets something absolutely hilarious to do, and cutting W's into his shirt, and just the attention to detail so that we see the flap just go down because you can't really cut a W into a shirt and make it look like a W. That was so good. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Well, and just how every now and again it would flip back up with his body motion so that you would remember what it was supposed like what it was was mm. was very was very fun and the little uh the little praise he got from Pacifica at the end about his fashion choice uh was was nice as well so this was a this was an enjoyable episode i liked that it pretty much just was the kids and grinkle stan was just kind of transportation in the background and the creativity i mean obviously there's some stereotypes going on and and the the voices and everything of the different uh the different areas of the putt putt course but i thought they were delightful i mean the whole random dramatic uh minor sequence was just oh my god fantastic that was the highlight of the episode that got really serious really quickly and Good lord, that's something actually that Adventure Time can pull off really well, is to have a moment like that in an otherwise light episode. That was ridiculously good. Well, and then at the end, when she's like deciding about the sticker and just not going to give them, there's like, remember, B- I don't even remember the character's name, but like one, you know, some of the miners are, are, have a rallying cry of remember their friend who died to deliver the ball. <laughs> the next time I go uh, to mini golf, I, I will be imagining all of this happening. Yeah. And that's one of the delightful things this episode offers. Uh, so yeah, a very much more lighthearted episode of Gravity Falls next to the more sinister Adventure Time this week. Um, any other thoughts, or shall we move on to our live-action entries? Let's go. Let's go. Well, next up are the FX comedies, so we're going to kick things off with Married Uncool. So uh, this one was the one I thought was going to be airing last week, uh, which had the delightful return of John Hodgman. What did you think of this episode? I thought both of the main storylines that we were following definitely had funny elements. This one, again, we've talked about it in the past couple of weeks, where You Are the Worst seems to be hitting higher comedic peaks, and this one's kind of a little bit more comfortable, I guess, which kind of matches the content, you know, the uh, the mundaneness, mundanity. mundanity. We also talked about that word before. <laughs> I think we've uh, tried to address that. But yeah. the mundanity of uh, married life. So, uh, yeah, no, the visiting the frat house and trying to find Dookie, what's his name, I think. Uh, and then also Lena's storyline where 
she quits the job that she didn't even go back to in the first place, and it was just kind of stupid uh, pot hijinks that still managed to work, I thought. Yeah, definitely. Though the the moment for me in this one was, of course, Boo popping up uh, for the Bunheads fans out there. I was like, no, you asshole, you don't mistreat Boo. And then when she went back to him at the end, it made me extra sad. I was like, no. Sorry, I have a big emotional attachment to my Bunheads. Uh, though I, mostly I was just glad to see to see that actress getting work. I hope to see lots of the various bunheads on uh, on on comedies and dramas moving forward. So that was that was a nice surprise there. Um, the, uh, the 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 stuff at the Fright House was the most uh, entertaining for me. I would laugh the most at that. But I did think that the balance of it, you know, it was just nice to see the wife given that storyline. Usually that would be the storyline given the the screw up dad kind of character. So I like that you know, that they really address how soul crushing a particular job can be. And it probably was not the right decision financially for their family, uh, for her to respond the way she did, but you know, that'll that'll we'll see them continue to struggle with various uh issues as they move forward with their finances, I'm sure. I like that this is a show that cares about that, that does show that element of you know, as being being married and having kids, and especially when you're, you know, a stay-at-home parent and somebody working in a creative field, work comes as it comes, and um, and so I, you know, I like that this shows the realities of that. Yeah, and the broadcast network stuff does not, so it's unfortunate that's kind of limited to the cable landscape, but it is really good when we do get something that does it well. Yeah. Any other thoughts on Married? Um, just. Brian Gelman getting punched in the face. That's always good. That's always good. Now, is do you, how do you rate this one compared to the previous episodes? For me, it was one of the funniest. Yeah, I would say it was one of the funnier ones. Um, maybe last week's at the resort, I think I liked overall as an episode of TV, though. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on to You're the Worst, What Normal People Do. And I like this one again. I'm 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 really on with you're the worst. I think, it, and again for me, it all comes down to Edgar, the the roommate Desmond uh, Borges, and I'm probably saying his name wrong, but he's doing a really fantastic job and really functioning as the glue in this group. Yeah, his because through me for a loop at least because I didn't see it coming, but giving him a storyline regardless of how it ends, um, I thought it's risky because obviously our two leads have much more material already given to them and much more to deal with. And, and yet he's able to kind of hold that B story really well, I thought. Yeah. And we've seen their storyline before. We've seen some version of it before. I like that, you know, his, that character and his perspective is, is different. It's a different twist on what we've seen before, at least. Yeah. And also with kind of just uh, how they're able to do some visual storytelling by him kind of walking around the house in his underwear and already like the three of them are comfortable around each other enough for that to be okay and not worth mentioning. Mm -hmm. I think they've used the kid well on the whole. I, I, <laughs> I think I better when the kid's not around, frankly, but uh, I think they've managed to use him well. Did, did he get sold meth? Is that what happened? Maybe. <laughs> oh, good we times. We'll find out next week, I guess. Uh, but yeah. The, yeah, the stuff between the leads, I thought, again, they're kind of picking one little aspect of beginnings of relationships to focus on and and this one was kind of um having to do with your personal ways about doing things so gretchen obviously realized that she really doesn't care about um 
dividing time equally between going to the two houses, and it's totally fine ultimately if they kind of just um, default to hanging out at his place. I like the the way you put that. That was a very diplomatic way to to rephrase the terminology in the episode. And Sam, I mean, that character is delightful as well. Just from the end of last week to to hear what what he gets in this episode, it's just it's I'm really enjoying the periphery characters, and they're they're what's really setting this show apart for me right now. The friendship with uh, Lindsay is also working well, but uh, but yeah, I mean. Between between Edgar and Sam, that's that's what's really cementing the show for me. Yeah, he's just very offensive, but the actor is so good at making it funny, and also he gets these little moments where he actually has something useful to contribute and that gets one of the characters thinking about something. So, yeah, yeah. little little things like that definitely work. Definitely. Well, let's move on to our final comedy this week, and that's Wilfred Courage. And... Uh, I did not see this coming. Congratulations, Wilfred. You pulled a twist, and I actually cared a little bit here. Uh, I I cared even more than a little bit. Like, I I wouldn't go so far as to say that this was one of the, the episodes that could make me cry under the right circumstances, but it definitely had the feels in it in certain ways. And I thought, I was very worried there towards the end they're going to go back to this idea of um, Wilfred being the trickster god, but they managed to stick the landing relatively okay so that I felt like they they didn't backtrack on all of the goodwill they built throughout the episode by hitting those emotional beats, whether that was finally seeing uh, Ryan and Jenna achieve something that felt somewhat real or seeing Wilfred go up the steps, um, all of the relationships, just, oh, I guess there's only the three of them, but... Um, all done very well, I thought. And uh, I really love that last moment of, um... <laughs> well, and they killed Bear, which I didn't <laughs> expect either. But I really love that last moment where he's like, it's 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 all serious, and it's he's like, yeah, I brought you to happiness. He's so focused on Ryan and all of that, and that means I'm a god. <laughs> and just immediately, <laughs> it all comes back to him you know I, I really appreciated that writing it felt very very true to the character and uh it was a nice way to undercut a very potentially emotional like you said all the feels kind of moment um and so where they go they still have two episodes left it's two episodes they're both gonna air this coming week and that'll be it i mean how do you feel about finally after all of this time um, Ryan and Jenna being together, it looks like. Um, I'm not sure. Because I'm not sure what the timeline for the show is. So if... I'm not sure how condensed the timeline for the show is. And so that could make a big difference in how I feel about it. And if they want this I me mean, cuz they just i got really tired of the back and forth i just i really get tired of that um shows that that present a love interest of either uh, gender but it's always who am i kidding it's almost always the woman uh, as a prize to be won and she's not interested but she just needs to see how really he's a good guy and she doesn't realize that's it's almost always creepy and stalkery and this has been that as well and is presented as a positive thing instead of an unhealthy thing. So this show has has done that in a very different way because it's 
not been presented as a healthy thing for Ryan most of the time. So to have the the end of the show be um, the, theoretically that he achieves this prize of his neighbor who he's been pining after all this time and uh, yeah, and who is conveniently super into him at this you know after you know, she breaks up with her husband and all of you know all of this stuff um that's underwhelming for me i uh. would like to, i would rather have had him move on i was much more interested in him with amanda but fiona Gulman is adorable uh so you know there's that and uh it depends on what they do in these last few episodes do you think they're gonna keep it or do you think they're gonna un- undo this it, there's two ways they could go about it, I think, with that relationship. and Or with I think, Wilfred. Yeah, and I think that Wilfred, the series, has done a good job of presenting cases for both uh, conclusions, one of them being that the point was to make Ryan comfortable with himself and with his emotions, and so in that way I think that finally not being as guarded and being able to let her into his life, um, I think that kind of maybe moves it away from her being a prize and more about him coming to grips with some of his own insecurities so that he can have healthy relationships. I think that that's one way. And I think I would prefer that way to ending again where it unravels because Wilfred actually is uh crungle or whatever. And we just end with Ryan going back into his depression, which I don't know. They're they, not going to do that. They've done the darker side of this story very well in the past, but I don't really see how that could be a logical conclusion for the series. No, they would piss everybody off, and it would not fit with what... What's more significant is that it would not fit with what they have consistently shown. So they could do that, but they haven't laid the groundwork for it to feel like anything other than a big F you to the fans. So... And it doesn't seem like that's the show they're making. And I look forward to eating my words if that's... (laughs) <laughs> what they end up doing next week. I don't. Oh. But, um, yeah, it's, that's not what the show's been for a long time. And that's part of why I've been frustrated with the way it's done this whole, is he evil thing? Cause I never, I never believe the show when it tries to get me to think he is I, never. Cause we, cause he's shown to consistently to be such a positive influence for Ryan, right? And he makes Ryan a better person and makes, gets him outside of himself and gets him active and involved and engaged in a way that he wouldn't be if Wilfred wasn't there. So to try to get me to believe that he's actually a negative force in his life just doesn't work for, you know, narratively for me. It doesn't work on a character level. Uh, what I don't trust the show to do is to, to actually kill Wilfred or to actually keep the two of them together. That's what I'm – I'm not sure that they're not going to just undo it. I I don't know. I mean, he's got lung cancer. Or does he? he? Oh, I switched the forms. <laughs> exactly. Could he have called in? Yeah, I was waiting for him to have been the call, and he called so that the two of them would hook up. But then uh, uh, Jenna said that she talked to the doctor, so that would require like good voice acting on his part. Or coercion. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous that we're even thinking about this, but uh, yeah, um, I I expect him. I'm gonna say that I expect him to die, just so that we have opposing views, and we'll see which one of us is right. Yeah, we'll see what they do. 
I would, I, you know, I would hope that they kill the dog. <laughs> I feel <laughs> I'm the worst down. person for saying that, but, uh, but I would love, you know, cause they, this show in it's one of its earlier seasons. I want to say season two was one of my favorite, one of my top 10 of that year that I watched it. Granted, I didn't watch as much TV that year as I do now, but, uh, but still it has the potential to be really powerful for me or really engaging and just hilarious. And so I would love it if it goes out on as strong of a note as the show has proven itself capable of in the past. I'm doubtful, but I hope to be wrong. Well, at the very least, this has been the best episode of the season. So that's Yeah, good. I agree with that. Yeah. Well, what is your episode of the week then? Are you giving it to Wilfred? I think, yeah, this one was a big enough jump in quality that it warrants the, the win. For me, um, I'm going to go... I still, sorry, I'm still not very engaged by Wilfred. Even this one, which did get me more. Certainly it did. But uh, I'm going to tie, I'm going to cheat and give it the, the old FX tie to Married and You're the Worst because there were moments I liked quite a bit. I mean, I watched You're the Worst this week, whereas Married, I had a screener of it quite a while ago, but I still remember that screener. So I'm not sure which one to give it to, so I'm going to make them share this week. Okay. Well, in that case, I'll give my tie to Adventure Time. Ooh, look at that. I'm always glad to see Adventure Time make make the uh, best of list. Well, now we're going to take a break and we'll come back with our week in reality and genre. Next up, we're going to talk a little reality and genre. First, we'll talk So You Think You Can Dance, which, of course, had the top 10 this week with the all-stars. And then we'll move on to genre, another truncated week in genre, just because it's it's difficult to catch up. There's a lot of stuff going on right now. So first, I'll talk a little of the strain, runaways, and then we'll both talk about the Outlander pilot, Sassanach. But first, our week in reality, So You Think You Can Dance. Sean, Sean, Sean. I I w- watched this and I knew you hadn't seen it yet. And I was like, oh, I can't wait to talk to Sean because everybody was really great this week, but he's going to not be happy. Boo hiss. That's, I, uh, okay. So whatever, you know, there, we will be talking about some very positive things about this episode in just a moment. But for right now, America just got it wrong. Not necessarily that Amelia was the best guy and that Bridget was the best girl, but they were without a doubt not the worst of the five each remaining. So, damn you, America. Damn you. <laughs> well, you know what? That's what bringing in the All-Stars always does. It just underlines who needs to go home. And 
shock and astonishment as lovely as she must be in person they almost all love working with her with the kind of praise they keep heaping on her but valerie valerie got to go <laughs> of the remaining ones yes although i will say um that was one of the points that i wanted to bring up was i kind of disagree with the judges not that she not that i thought that that was a very good routine and that she was very good in it. It's just that she showed me new things in this week's episode that I thought um, kind of made her seem like a more varied dancer. And so I thought that that was good, even if they weren't executed perfectly. But yeah, yeah. I mean, between her and Jackie, I think I would rather see Valerie go. Yeah. Well, I mean, that that ballet, I thought it was gorgeous. And, and it was such a smart move for this show. Of course, they pair up Jackie with Keon, Keon being a professional ballet dancer, at least before he won So You Think You Can Dance two seasons ago for the guys that year. But um, to, to not do classical ballet, but to to do a routine on point entirely, it was so just the, the way it was shot with the shadows was gorgeous, very simple music, simple but elegant lines showing just how gorgeous something that is slow can be oftentimes the the really fast and the hard hitting stuff is what really uh, gets to people gets the votes or um the very emotional contemporary to have it this be something so still but so graceful i thought it was gorgeous yeah it was i thought that was one of the the three standouts for this week the other two being just total surprises because i know casey has been good once or twice in the past but he hasn't impressed me overall but him this week, and especially Zach, whose routine almost brought me to tears, those two were fantastic. And after seeing both of them, I felt just slightly less bad about Emilio going, um, although I'll still begrudge them. But uh, <laughs> yeah, those were those were two very good routines. Well, and of course, I, I look forward to I look forward to talking with you about this because, of course, Amy, who was with Zach, uh, won last season for the girls. Uh, Catherine, who was with Casey, is from earlier in the show's run, but she had an, a stunning routine last season with the runner-up uh, for the guys last year, which was Aaron. Um, I highly recommend, if you like Catherine, and she's amazing, so how could you not? Because she's just, <laughs> damn, she's so good. Uh, look up Catherine and Aaron's dance from last year. Just gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. And she's got any number of fantastic routines. Um, those were both great. I thought Jessica nailed it. She Ooh, was yeah. fantastic. And I loved the choreography, too, that they played up the age difference. Yeah. That was flawless, you know. And maybe that's why it... I guess I kind of expected it to be based on what you had told me about uh, Twitch and having seen how good Jessica can be under the right circumstances. But yeah, there was... There was nothing wrong about that at all. It was just so fun, and and I love the, the the costume design of it. I mean, and how hard Twitch was hitting everything with a pillow stomach, you know? <laughs> yeah, just so great. And he's you know he's fantastic. If, that's another YouTube spiral you could easily fall into. There's a lot of really great Twitch routines. Twitch and Alex, who was uh, he uh, Alex was a ballet dancer who made it to like the top five or something, but then tore his like his ACL or his um, 
uh, or his knee or something got, got a pretty serious injury. And so it was taken out of the running. Uh, but he, he did a ridiculous Bollywood number last season with Amy that you can check out. Fantastic. Um, but also Twitch and Alex have one of the best, uh, uh, I think it's Nappy Tabs routine, one of the best hip hop routines the show's ever done. As does Jasmine and Comfort. You'll see Comfort next week. I think you're gonna like Comfort. What did you think of Jasmine and Amelia's number? Very good. I mean, the concept I thought was fantastic, and the whole story of it from beginning to end worked very well. Yeah, that was a pair I would have loved to have seen more of, um, but one that clearly complement they complemented each other very well. So. Mm-hmm. If for that being his last performance, it was another very, very good one, I thought. Yeah. Remind me, what was... Uh, oh, we had Lauren with Ricky doing, like, the 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 hipster, like, the original term, <laughs> version of the term, uh, uh, number. What did you think of that? Uh, solid. You know, Ricky has been flawless the entire season, and he remains so, um, to the point where I'm still fine with the judges basically saying, you're going to win this, you're going to win this. It's not become annoying because, like, he's clearly good enough to do that. Um, so, yeah, it wasn't, I think, one of the best ones that he's done all season, but definitely strong. Yeah, and that's the thing for me. I keep saying with him, I want him to be emotionally challenged. I want yeah. him to have to stretch to show a different side of his personality, I and mean, they've not made him do that yet. I'm hoping that's coming this coming week. Uh, then we had the two ballroom, Tanisha and Ryan, uh, Ryan, just that's how you partner ballroom. And then we had Jenna with with Rudy, and uh, poor Rudy, he's just. <laughs> here's the thing: <laughs> to partner with Jenna, you got to be a man, and he is not man enough for Jenna yet. I don't think oh, he. Man. She made him look like a little boy, uh, and the, and he did a good job. But imagine that number. With Jenna and Ryan, I'm not going to disagree. I mean, Rudy is a whole lot of fun, but he's he's still got a ways to go. I'm really glad that he's made it this far, though, because he's got such good energy. Mm-hmm. It was nice to see him. Uh, do, he did a really good job, I thought, with like all his footwork and everything. But just the the connection that needed to be there for me wasn't. Uh, I was just basically I was watching her the whole time. She's another person from last season. Um, any thoughts on Tanisha? Uh, what was that set to? The song. Yeah, was that Liza Minnelli? Mm, that, no, uh, the Liza Minnelli was the Broadway number. Okay. Tanisha was the Argentine tango? Okay, yes. Well, Tanisha has been one that has definitely grown on me over the course of the season. And honestly, now that Bridget's gone, she might be my favorite of the remaining girls. So if I had to replace my two, I think it'd probably be Tanisha and now... Casey, I'm going to say. Casey? He can yeah. just spin for days. If he could get more expression with his face, because he, he seems like he's a really just kind of happy guy, which mm-hmm. is sort of Valerie's thing as well. She just seems like she's a really well-adjusted, kind of happy, good person, which you need to be able to mask that sometimes. So yeah. if he can get more complex stuff going on with some of his with his face sometimes i think to go with his just gorgeous lines i think that could be good um i am gonna remain on the fence but that was a really smart use of casey i thought that the, that number was great the song like get using the Manelli version and everything of that uh yeah i, th- I think there's like a cup like i there were a couple little 
details I kind of wanted. I kind of, again, he did a better job than most of the other guys at not looking like a little boy next to his partner. Mm. And that could just be because he's taller. But I kind of wanted her to leave him at the end of the song just because I would have bought it more. <laughs> yeah. I didn't I didn't buy Casey leaving <laughs> Catherine. I sure. could have bought Catherine leaving Casey. Um but I but I thought there was more of a connection with the two of them and it was a really nice routine. So do we send home Valerie and Rudy? Would those be your yeah, votes? That would be my yeah. vote. I think I would do that as well. I don't know if that will be America's vote, but it probably won't be. I think Valerie's going though. I think Yeah, you know. I don't think Rudy will though. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see what happens. But I mean, I just love to get to see something new and different on this this uh the season. So that to to have that ballet just that really stuck out stood out to me as being a fantastic way to use ballet on the show because whenever they've tried to do classical ballet it's never really worked because basically it's so freaking hard they need more time to learn it they need to be up they need to not be doing all these other styles and messing up their technique for weeks beforehand um so to to get that version of it yeah if, yeah i think there's oh and so so are you interested now having seen these all-stars are you interested in seeking out some of their previous routines or not really uh yes yeah I am I think that will be something I'll probably do after the season is over mm-hmm. um right now I'm just way too invested in these remaining eight dancers like I I don't want this to end Kate I don't want the season to end <laughs> Isn't I feel it like great? they're my friends I followed <laughs> them on Twitter yep yep no it's yeah. it's it's a great show and not enough people are watching and it is by no means an assured thing that we will get a season twelve. So enjoy it while it's on. Uh, fingers crossed. Well, let's let's move on to our week in genre. And we're going to kick things off uh, with The Strain, um, Runaways. Now, this episode, if I didn't have screeners, uh, and I'm not trying to be a jerk, a jerky McJerk who uh, rubs in the fact that I get screeners or anything, but if I didn't have screeners, I would stop watching at this point. Um, if I had to like schedule my life around remembering to watch and everything, especially on a very packed Sunday night, um, this episode with its flashbacks to the um, uh, to the Abraham character in the concentration camps and everything, uh, that would have gotten me to stop watching. And you know, the, there's a review up at Sound Insight for this, and and I wholeheartedly agree with the reviewer that it it almost works. In that there's certain elements about it, just like the 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 master creeping around through the the bunks in the in the camp, works really well. And there's like the horror of it, and you know, having adding that supernatural element to the already abject horror of what was happening during the Holocaust is surprisingly effective. But everything else with this really isn't. It's just i would say in general don't try to do the holocaust in one like the b plot of an episode of a tv show doesn't seem like it's a good move um i don't know it just so everything about that character is is interesting because of david bradley and his performance it's not really the character that is interesting it's the performance that's interesting and we get a couple moments in this episode that are ridiculous and fun like him washing the dishes while wearing his fingerless gloves which is very bizarre. Uh, but everything we get in flashback is stuff that we've, for the most part, seen before. It's nothing new. 
and it's not given enough time or weight to really have extra punch, really pack an extra punch. So uh, I would rather have spent the time with present day David Bradley, but it wasn't bad. I don't know. It's just, it's just, I'm not interested in most of what the show is doing. And that includes what we get with F and what we get with, um, the, his boss at the CDC and Nora and her mom, Nora, of course has to have an, uh, an aging mother who is uh, apparently who's staying in a, a nursing home, but wants to go home, but has, um, some level of dementia and is losing her memory. Um, I don't, I mean, there's already too much going on in this show that I don't care about. I don't need to add Nora's mom to the list of things I don't care about, along with Sean Astin's character's wife. You know, I, there's already enough I don't care about. They need more things that I do care about. And uh, we get to see the, the the final of our four infected really start to turn in this episode. I thought those scenes worked well, but they've already played that, oh, will they hurt the person they care about card so many times that it's not particularly effective when we're getting it here in its fourth incarnation. And what a waste, complete waste of Regina King in this uh, supporting role. I mean, she gets, no I mean, I'm glad she got a paycheck, but she gets nothing to do. Anyways, all these things combined to say, there's a lot of stuff on TV right now on Sundays and the strain is not um, anywhere near among the more interesting. So I'm just kind of waiting for it to finish out its run. I hope that they can pull something together to make it more interesting. But right now I barely care about one and a half of the characters. And that's not something that should be happening at this point in the season. Are you, do you think you're going to catch up or are you just going to let it go? Uh, yeah, I think I'll finish out the first season just out of curiosity, but I say that as I've been becoming more and more lax. So Three weeks from now, maybe I'll just have given up all hope. Well, one that I hope you enjoyed was Outlander, which just had its pilot. I'm very intrigued by the responses to this because there are certain things I really like about it and certain things that I really don't. Uh, how did this pilot work for you? Uh, mostly well. And one of the things that you had mentioned last week was the use of voiceover narration. And I agree almost completely with you about how it's executed here. It really just if they are going to do it, it can't be the script can't be written as if it was just copying and pasting from prose, which just doesn't translate very well on the screen. And also, if they wanted to do it, I think it, it probably would be better if it was just in present tense completely rather than the mixture of past and present that we get, which makes it feel really antiquated. But it is a period piece, so I guess to some extent it kind of fits, but it, it's also relatively annoying. Um, the lead actress I thought was great. The story so far, um, I think they spent the appropriate amount of time before going into what Outlander is going to become. So it was, I enjoyed the time spent in the post-World War uh, setting with her and her husband just to have the grounding there. And now we're in a strange and brave new world, I guess. But uh, it's it's got me interested, which is absolutely what a pilot like this needs to do. I don't even know. If, I mean, I guess this is a genre show, but it's also kind of not. So this is kind of a weird um, mixture of elements for a series, at least in the pilot. So maybe it'll become more defined uh, in the next few episodes. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if Outlander transitions pretty quickly over here into the drama section of the podcast. Or if maybe we just combined genre and drama, because it basically isn't a genre show. There's time travel, but just 
very little uh you know there's there's certain <laughs> mystical elements as well with the um the 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 druids and the palm reading and all of that but it's very low key so i'd be surprised if that uh if any sense of the genre elements pretty much go away right away um and uh, I, yeah i have already talked about it at length last week so i'm just going to kind of stay mum here any other final thoughts on on the music or the setting or the set design or you know do you have a preference yeah. between her gentleman callers um well, i guess the one who she helps with the injury so I don't know. We uh, really only have characteristics for two of the people that she's traveling with right now. So, yeah. Oh, I mean, no, I meant between him and her husband. I mean, well, I, is she going to be... She's not going to be interacting with her husband, though, so... I don't know. I just don't know. What did you think about the use of the same actor to play Blackjack? <laughs> uh, solid? Yeah. And this is for... This is Edmer as well, right? Yes. Yeah, he's he's good. Um, I mean, it's really just her who gets like the most to do in the pilot, uh, appropriately enough. So I'll kind of hold off on the supporting performances until we get some more of them. I will say, to answer one of your questions, that this looks absolutely beautiful, and it sounds great as well. Um, so yeah, definitely on board in terms of the production values. Well, you only watched the one, uh, so I won't really ask you what you're... I guess, you know, between So You Think You Can Dance... And Outlander, what wins your week in reality and genre? I'll give it to So You Think You Can Dance. As will I. I really enjoyed this episode. Um, and then it would be Outlander, and then it would be The Strain. But uh, I'll give it to So You Think You Can Dance. So let's take a break and come back with a lengthier segment, which will be our week in drama. This week in drama, I'm going to talk a little Manhattan, The Hive, and a little The Honorable Woman, The Unfaithful Husband, and then we'll both talk The Nick Pilot, Method and Madness, before going on to rectify The Destroyer, The Great Destroyer, that is, The Leftovers, Solace for Tired Feet, and then Masters of Sex, Giants. But first, Manhattan. Um, and with this episode, it really, again, it was very much the same strengths and weaknesses of the show, but the focus of this episode very much underlined that we're going to have a lot in this, in the series is going to be a lot of wondering which middle-aged white man uh, is going to win out in this power struggle between middle-aged or slightly younger men. And I don't care. And uh, I already know how this story ends generally. I know what happened with the Manhattan project and there's just not enough, I, they're asking me to buy in too much 
to this central conflict or this central figure of the great man thrust into this horrible choice and what will he do and all of this. Um, and I just don't care about the characters enough to make that really work. I think there's interesting things at play here. And if there weren't so many things for me to be watching, I would keep track of it. But at this point with the Nick and Outlander thrown in, I just don't have time, especially on Sundays for Manhattan. If this was like a Tuesday or Wednesday show and I could kind of catch up with it over the course of the week before we recorded, then I would be more likely to. But I got to I got to pare down Sundays because they're they're too crazy for me right now. So I, I'm sorry to say that Manhattan is falling by the wayside for me. Um, and as for the honorable woman, I'll keep it brief. I know we'll talk more about it next week when you've had a chance to, to catch up. But uh, this was another really excellent episode. I'm less interested in the well, let's just say I hope to be surprised by the the mystery or of what happened to our lead character because it seems pretty obvious. Um, but that doesn't mean, you know, I, again, oftentimes with my favorite shows, I think I know what they're going to do and then I get pleasantly surprised. So I'm hoping that there's something I don't foresee to make that feel like less of a, to make it feel like more of a twist because they're really selling it through the script and the performance as some dark secret and just with some basic math, it doesn't seem like it should be a dark secret, but, um, the, what, what I'm expecting to happen and I am keeping it. Um, I'm just being very vague here in case I'm right. And I don't, I don't want people to think I'm spoiling anything. I don't, I haven't watched ahead. Um, but anyways, the, the, all those things that are excellent in the first episode are really strong here. A lot of really nice moments of performance. I was glad to see that Tobias Menzies is not dead yet. His character is in a coma or something. Um, he's, you know, in the hospital, but he's not quite dead yet. And I'm glad about that. Um, as for the other characters, I wasn't very, I wasn't very surprised by the twist at the end, though I was disheartened, but I think that's because I care about the characters enough that when they make a destructive or selfish choice, I care about the people that they're hurting and that's a good sign so just again this is a show that more people should be checking out it's interesting it for the most part thus far is well performed well scripted beautiful cinematography and an excellent score i love the score on the show so check out the honorable woman we'll talk about it more next week but let's move on to the nick on cinemax which had its pilot method and madness all of these episodes are going to be directed by steven soderbergh and i believe he's also the the dp or cinematographer but I could be wrong on that. Um, what did you think of this pilot? Solid. And I think that this is a really important series for Cinemax right now. And I almost wish that they had made the decision to air it on Sunday nights because this is the closest thing that they've had so far to what we expect from HBO or Showtime regarding, uh, I guess, the more traditionally uh, premium cable dramas. So I had all the elements of those kinds of shows and was also like very stylistic in a way that separates it enough. So I enjoyed it. I think there's definitely some problems. I know that this isn't an archetype that we particularly like anymore now that it's been beaten to death several times. Um, but obviously Clive Owen's a fantastic actor and the story, I guess, is one that hasn't, um, I guess I shouldn't say that, the the contents, so the superficial details, kind of what he is, what he does, and what the plots are going to revolve around, I think, is a little bit different for 
uh, current television. So it, it's definitely got things that will interest people. I wouldn't say this is the best pilot of the summer so far. I'd probably still give that to the Honorable Woman, but there is a lot going on here that interested me immediately. And it, it, because it's Steven Soderbergh, this looks fantastic. And I absolutely love the the music here. So it's, I don't know if fun would be it, but it's engaging, I think, and also kind of stomach churning in a couple scenes. That is an excellent adjective. It certainly is at times. Uh, I really like the attention to detail with, with those elements, with those period medical uh, elements. And uh, I'll take this opportunity to give a shout out to the Sawbones podcast, which talks about uh, medical history. Um, and if you enjoy that element of the show, you might enjoy that podcast. But um, the, yeah, the this is very, it's both very familiar and very fresh because again, it's middle-aged white guys who have a bunch of money and power, but are difficult, difficult, creative geniuses. Um, and we've seen that so many times, you know, and, and underappreciated geniuses as well. I just, Time and again, time and again, we've seen that. It's not interesting to me anymore. What is more interesting to me is the the elements of uh, of of the, the black doctor who gets brought in and and what that presents. You know, I'm interested in that character, the kind of character who would stick around with that after taking that much abuse from these assholes that he's trying to work with, um, as well as the the female daughter of the the basically the rich guy on the board who is put in charge of being his proxy which gives her enough authority to actually be involved in the hospital i'm more interested in her and and then just some of these you know, it's may seem superficial but i've seen a medical drama time and again i haven't seen one where for a suction they have to crank a wheel and you know the, just some of the realities of what it would be like to be in a hospital in you know turn of the century uh, turning to the 20th century, I should say, uh, New York is very interesting to me. I think there's a lot of potential. And like you say, it looks gorgeous. It's a strong cast in general. And I'm just kind of hoping that it gets more interesting moving forward, that they're going to kind of steer away from some of these things we've seen before. I would like to to hope that is where the script will lead us. Um, as for the score, absolutely love it. We did get a tweet from one of our listeners, Brian, who uh, was hoping for a a bit of discussion about it he's not a fan uh to put it in a mild way i love it too i really i really think it gives excellent energy to the what's going on it really puts you in the it sets this establishes the tone immediately because i i was watching this pilot and within the first 30 seconds i had written down love the score so it from the very first shots of this pilot it it sets the period world you see the the trappings and the you know the streetcars and the, or the sorry the the carriages on the street and the costuming and all of that and pairing that with the score tells you everything you need to know about what this show is interested in being tonally yeah and the reason that i think that it works so well is because uh this is a cinemax series so this is their way because if you look at something like penny dreadful which was a period piece um and had a very what you would consider traditional for that uh, kind of drama, that scoring made sense. Uh, this is a much more interesting take, and I think that Cinemax is doing a good job by establishing an identity in several ways, and that being one of them. So 
it's almost giving it that upbeat action-y vibe that a lot of their shows have, um, but applying it to something very different. So it's, it is strange, and it was almost, um, I guess, alarming at first, but I kind of settled into it pretty quickly, and uh, I am enjoying it. The thing to keep in mind with period scoring for a period show is that the audience has a completely different relationship to that music than the characters would have. If you're going to use time-specific music or instrumentation to go with your period drama, we have a completely, the people watching it have a diametrically opposed relationship with that music. So the music that would be interesting, innovative, and fresh, and very exciting at that time, to us is stodgy and quaint. And so if you're going to have your characters surrounded by their world, it, it makes more sense to me to surround them with what we are going to translate into, you know, music that's going to translate to us into what they're feeling or what they're experiencing, as opposed to what they're literally hearing. And I would relate this to, for example, Deadwood, which has a lot of swearing, a lot of profanity, but it's not period specific profanity because it wouldn't mean anything to us. It would be like, ah, God's thumb or whatever, which doesn't mean anything to us, but was very significant. And, you know, at one point in time, that was the F-bomb, you know? So to to update it to something that makes sense for you, gives the desired effect for the modern audience, that's just smart as far as I'm concerned. So I always enjoy when, when shows are willing to do that. I mean, Mozart was pop music. And so you could use Mozart if you have something set in the 1700s, the late 1700s, or you could use pop music. And probably people are going to associate very, very different things with a, with a rustic gavotte of the Pays de Gap uh, region that is supposed to be a dance of the people. And, you know, that means a very different thing to the people of the time than it does to the people listening to it now. And so to, to try to, feel like you have to keep music or other elements absolutely period specific for them to be correct is um, limited in my opinion so uh, I'm a big proponent of it and I'm glad that you like it too (laughs) I can't believe you said God's thumb my innocent ears I know I'm just I, I, I live outside the lines I color outside the lines like I'm like the uh the go getting them female lead of Outlander. I just, I don't play by the rules. Oh, man, you should be in a television show. No, I shouldn't. But let's move on to Rectify, the Great Destroyer. And they just keep darkening the world of Rectify. What did you think of this episode? It's getting rough. Um, If you're really invested in the Holden family, because now I think, like, there's immense strain on pretty much everybody. And there's some nice moments as well. I think that, that Ted Sr. and Daniel um, kind of begin to have a conversation that they need to have. But then, unfortunately, when we see the episodes end, things are going to get even worse. So, I don't know. You're right. It's, it's definitely getting darker um, and not any easier to watch. Not that it was to begin with, because Daniel's situation is a, a re- really rough one. But we've had a lot of comedic elements, I think, in the last few episodes, and, and now those seem to be going to the wayside, which is fine, because this does dr- uh, drama incredibly well. But uh, 
yeah, I'm, I'm not optimistic about things that are going to be happening. Yeah, the, the very focused approach to the narrative, adhering very much to uh, the ambiguity of it and not giving viewers a easy out, not to, not making it easy on viewers. Instead, prioritizing complication and nuance and all everything that comes with. Uh, I will say, though, this is probably one of the lesser episodes of the season for me because I didn't think they could do it, but these scenes with with uh, Tawny and with uh, Daniel, uh, they're a big Calvin Klein commercial for me. Uh, they, they kind of... Um, I feel like they overplayed the wistful sidelong look and the still music, and it just was a a little bit more uh, heightened or um, extreme, maybe, than it's been in the past. It didn't feel as natural. It felt more manufactured to me. Was that just me? No, there was something, there was that energy that was missing from their scenes, which has been there in the past, even when it's just a brief moment, like the one that they shared in the kitchen, like the last week or the week before that. And yeah, some other elements, I think, in this episode, not that this was a, a, a weak episode of TV, maybe it was just weak for Rectify. Um, the, the flashbacks, I guess they're flashbacks uh, with Wendell, um, thrown in there, and they weren't bad, but they were kind of superfluous, and... I don't know. Um, of the newer scenes that I think that we got, the one between Teddy Jr. and Jake, is that the youngest son's name? I, I enjoyed that because they haven't really used Jake very well, and so if they're going to take a stab at that, that's material hopefully worth mining. So I'm I'm at least looking forward to seeing what they do with that. Yeah. The, the other thing, and I, I like that they're exploring that character more. He's been the one that's been the least explored because he was the least formed when Daniel went away. And, you know, he's came along later and grew up around this stuff, but never really knew Daniel. Um, so that's, you know, it makes sense that he's more of a blank slate in relation to what's been going on. But uh, I look forward to seeing more with Jake um, with Daniel and Tawny. Um, this is where I run into a little bit of problem with, I mean, I thought that their scenes together, especially when he's, asking uh you know I, I really liked his confrontation of jesus didn't save me you did like I, I really enjoyed that conversation however when you are reminded that the entire first season is a week really she led you on it was a week i obviously it was a very significant and emotional and intense week for him his first week of freedom but it was a week i don't think you can criticize her for that no, and I agree with that completely, and it's kind of just the trick of television that we've been away from that for about a year, and it's they they don't necessarily remind us too often about that fact. So, yeah, the events in Rectify have happened very quickly, so his the intensity of him feeling that probably is just because now that he's out of death row, everything's moving um with more purpose, I suppose. So he feels it more heavily, but <clears throat> like you said, it's not really leading him on. They barely even know each other really. So, yeah. Well, and in the first season, they didn't emphasize the time period, but in the second season, they made a point of saying that it had only been 
a week in the that the first season had only taken about a week um and so if if they hadn't stressed mentioned that a couple times in this season i would have no problem with it because those moments are so so languid and they really uh the show sits in them in such a beautiful way that they feel much more lengthy and significant than maybe from an exterior perspective they would be but because the show brought it up it was in my mind and that sort of undercuts some of those that that conversation as powerful as those moments were and, and uh, as significant as they certainly were to Daniel and to, to Hani as well. But um, anyways, I'm sure we'll get more with Rectify in the next couple of weeks. We're almost at the end of the season. It's kind of hard to believe already, though. I think the show has done well with its extra episodes. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it still remains one of the best dramas on TV. But I think now we're at a point where we can nitpick a little bit. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to The Leftovers, Solace Retired Feet, and I really enjoyed this episode quite a bit. I think, I mean, I liked the character-centric one that we got previously more, but um, but I still enjoyed this episode, and um, but, but again, when I think, the more I think about it, the more frustrated I get, because again, this is a show that they have said is not about answers, and then it keeps introducing mysteries for us that seem like they should have an answer. And so if they don't want us to expect an answer, then why are they continually adding in these elements of of significance and of uh, deep import? You know, like Wayne times two, you know, having two magic babies. But maybe he's not magic. But if he isn't magic, then how come we've continually seen him apparently be magic? You know, like these, I don't want to be worrying about these things because the individual performances I think are really great. I really like what we get with uh, Thoreau's character and his dad. So, so I want to focus in on that, but then the further I get away from the episode, the fridge moment I'm having is, wait a minute, but they said they weren't going to give us answers because that's not what it was about. So then why do they keep bringing up these coincidences. I don't know. What, what do you think? I like Rectify. I thought for me, this is one of the weaker ones. There were elements that did work. So I, even though that we don't really get many answers, like you said, with, uh, the, the father character, the grandpa, um, he's a very great performer. And so the, the character is kind of almost innately appealing because of that. But the daughter's story, um, Again, she's also a good performer for that role because she pulls those facial expressions off well and the deadness is perfect, but there's just not really anything to her that interests me. Um, And also the Wayne stuff and the Christine stuff, again, is probably the weakest uh, subplot of The Leftovers for me in this first season. So to get more of that, I was not particularly excited. Uh, But I did like... uh, Justin Thoreau's character, whose name I Garvey? don't remember. Garvey. Garvey and Nora's scenes I thought worked well, so to have them kind of have a failed sexual encounter and then to have a successful one and for them to achieve some kind of connection there, that was probably the best part of the episode for me. I also really liked the daughter, um, her fridge moment. I thought that was really, really nice. And uh, I love that they they say you look like Snow White. Because she does, which I wouldn't have thought of, but that, you know, she could eat, you know, with with the brown hair and the darker hair and the pale skin and everything. I just thought that was such a lovely little bit of uh, actor-specific dialogue that they threw in, and it's so, so delightful and fun and unexpected. Um, so so I, I'm, I'm enjoying that daughter character more than I really have any right to enjoy a teenage <laughs> character on a show like this. 
Um, yeah, as for the Wayne stuff with the the son, and I mean, I just I don't care if it's not a miracle baby. I don't care because they haven't done a good enough job of getting me to care because they're all so invested in because that character, the son, is so invested in Wayne as miracle guy, and so is Christine that they they feel only defined by that element. So if he's not, then you take that element away and it's just an unexplored character. So they, they need to do some work with the son character or just drop him. Yeah. I feel like a bad person for saying it, but just ignore it's... the teenage son. He doesn't need to <laughs> exist. He can just fall no. off the face of the earth. Not at all. Uh, it also feels like they're going the American beauty route with uh, the daughter's friend because there's something there. Yeah. Like between her and, uh, and, Sheriff Garvey, so they've not shown that explicitly, but it seems like that they're building to something. Yeah, and I don't want them to be, so yeah. I kind of dread that each week, but it really feels like, it feels like that's what they're building towards, but I'm I'm hoping it's not. I Please let me be wrong, The Leftovers. I want to be wrong about that one. Uh, I was expecting us to get, I, obviously he saw something that traumatized him significantly on the night you know, or like shortly after everybody that, you know, the departures, um, I keep waiting to, I feel like if there's one thing we need to know by the end of the season, that's it. Um, and I was hoping to get more of that because we saw flashes of like with the dogs eating something in this episode, we saw flashes of that. I was hoping we were get by the end of the episode, we were going to get some more insight, but not yet. So as long as we get some sort of resolution with that arc, over the season, I'll be a happy camper. But um, again, we're also getting closer to the end of the leftovers because I believe it's only what is it eight, maybe ten? I think it's eight. Yeah, so we're getting close to the end of the season here with the leftovers as well. But um, but for now, let's move on to Masters of Sex and Giants. It's been, I think, a really consistent season, a really strong season on the whole. So, did this episode continue that trend for you? It absolutely did, and this is Masters of Sex is. Uh, Masters of Sex is season to to lose, basically. I'll be really surprised if this doesn't make my top ten for the year because of how strong this is. And to kind of use Mad Men as a comparison again, or rather as a point of contrast, where in Mad Men, Don Draper certainly is the center and everybody else seems to get meaning from what's going on in his story. It seems like a lot of the meaning derived um, from... Bill Masters is coming from the secondary characters. This is such a good cast, and everybody in it is really interesting in all of their lives right now. It there's like we talk about the leftovers, and there's you know the one story that we're having problems with. I am really invested in every single thing that's going on in Masters of Sex right now. Not least of which, of course, is what we get with Betty in this episode, which is just beautiful. And I, I didn't expect her to kind of bump up to be such a huge presence for me. I definitely enjoyed her in the first season, but I thought, you know, okay, it's going to be Libby and what's going on at the house, or it's going to be the relationship between Lillian and Virginia. But Betty's storyline is among the best on TV right now in terms of secondary characters in any series. So, yes, I I love Masters of Sex right now. Annalie Ashford, she's just so good. And I, I really enjoyed that they cast Sarah Silverman as her ex here, uh, it's such they have they have good chemistry and they play well off of each other, and it's just I'm happy when Annalie Ashford's on my TV. Of course, she left the show 
or was she was only supposed to be on a fair handful of episodes in the first season they went ah she's really good but she was already going to broadway so they had to wait to bring her back until the second season but i'm so glad that they did because she's fantastic um like you said that that arc was really engaging in this episode and again i've said it the last couple weeks but more greg grunberg is also a good thing for me uh, i thought the musical moment was really nice uh for in that episode I I wanted to use it as the music leading to this section, but I knew we'd talk about the Nick, so I figured I should use that instead. But um, it's such a wonderful, cute little moment here at the top. But uh, for me, a lot of this episode comes down to the what we get with Libby and Coral. I think that's actually maybe what I'm most invested in right now. And I thought the the way that Coral just messes with Libby in you know takes whatever little power she has in that dynamic and exploits it to tell Libby to back off. Uh, it was really great. Yeah, and again, like, that eventually comes back to Bill, and so it, it kind of sheds light on what's going on in his life as well, and everything is working incredibly well in tandem, I think. Uh, the scenes at the new hospital, I thought, were very strong. Um, the The doctor, I forget his name, who is working with Bill, who gives him the really great speech at the end about how um, forward-thinking a lot of his work is and how he should be remembering that and trying to bring in new patients um, or to retain all of his former patients, and then to see afterwards that he actually doesn't care about the study at all. Uh, It's already setting up a lot of intriguing elements, I think. Certainly, that and that's I don't remember the act the character name, but that's Courtney B. Vance is the actor. Very glad to see him back on my TV. Um, the last time he was, I watched a show that he was on a regular on. I think it was probably Law and Order, um, one of the Law and Orders. I'm not sure which one, but um, I, it's very nice to see him turn up here. He's an excellent actor, and I'm glad he's in the rotation as well on this cast. This excellent cast, like you said, um, yeah. And to have, and it's not just that he doesn't support the study he tears down that flyer with disgust he is vehemently not a fan of that study um but i'd like that we get some insight into to him and his goals and the kind of person he is that he looks at bill masters and this is what he sees that's really it's really great i like um also what we get with um with jenny and bill it's important that because they're making Bill right basically about racism right now, whereas most of the other characters are more nuanced. And, and so I like that they just make him wrong in his interactions with Ginny and and their relationship that they won't they refuse to call a relationship. Yeah, that was a really strong scene for her, and to kind of strip him down to his bareness, which is what she did in the uh, the fight episode uh, and he remained clothed so um, that's just a really beautifully complicated thing that's going on and it's good to see that both of them have exhibited genuine feelings in one way or another so that you know we were talking about shipping like to, to some degree this is definitely a thing and it was a something that probably most critics and viewers were worried about in the first season was they don't need to do that. It's a great relationship otherwise, but there's the real connection. And I think that they both provide one another with important ways of dealing with all of the external shit that's going on. 
So, yeah, that another great scene between those two actors. Well, and it also highlights the ways in which he is still very much a boy, a child. He's not able to say how he feels. And so he basically tells her that part of, he says, he tells her that part of her job is to have sex with him. And so, I mean, how does, how does he, if he thought for a moment about what that was saying to her and what that, what that meant, then, you know, he would probably have a different reaction, but he's not doing that. And so her reaction, the only response, again, she takes the power that she has of the, the power of that lab coat to, to make him feel some comparison of how he made her feel earlier. It's like, okay, you want me that I have to participate in the study with you? Fine. We're going to, we're going to actually do some study here. How do you like it? Yeah. All around great. Another great episode of Masters of Sex. So what wins your week in drama? Uh, I wish I had seen The Honorable Woman because I definitely really enjoyed that pilot. But uh, the ones that I did get to, it would be Masters of Sex. I'm going to give it to... I'm going to give it to Masters of Sex as well. I, I enjoyed several of these episodes, but um, but the, 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 there were this, those just little details and rectify those couple of moments that didn't quite work for me and... We already discussed my issues with the leftovers. So, um, yeah, I, good episodes from The Nick and Honorable Woman. But this week I'm giving it to Masters of Sex. A few show notes. You can find a post up for this episode at soundonsite.org where you can leave us a comment and let us know what you thought of the week's TV. You can also send us an email, theteleverse at gmail.com. You can find us up in iTunes where we have an M4A chaptered feed where, so you can skip between the shows you haven't uh, seen and you have seen, uh, as well as an MP3 feed. We would appreciate feedback either place. A rating or a review does help other people find the show. It's It's been a while, guys. Maybe send us a little love on iTunes. You can also like us on Facebook to follow the goings on at Sound Insight TV. And you can also follow us both on Twitter. I am at the Televerse. And Sean, you are? At Sean Coletti. And Sean, where else can we find your work? Uh, you can find some of my written work other than at soundonsight.org at tvovermind.com. And you can find some of my writing, uh, again, currently it's Blackadder and Spartacus going up Thursdays and Fridays at the AV Club. Uh, Sean, what is our question of the week? Well, it's got to be... Robin Williams. So let's hear all of your favorite performances, favorite films, uh, however you want to do it. Uh, the best Robin Williams moments for you. I'm gonna have to think on that. I'm gonna have to give myself a little distance and think before I respond. Any, any? Well, we already gave our thoughts, I guess, at the start of the episode. But, um, but yeah, great question. Um, so now we're gonna take a break, uh, listen to a little music, and come back with. Myself and Jason Griffin, the TV-aholic, and Tina from TV Goodness. Those are the three voices you hear asking questions for the most part um, in our conversations with Jeff Russo, composer for Fargo, James Levine, composer for American Horror Story, and Christopher Young, uh, film and occasional TV composer as well. Uh, so we'll be right back with that after this.
this week, instead of the DVD shelf, as mentioned earlier, I'm going to have the last chunk of my composer interviews or roundtables from Comic-Con this year. Uh, and again, it's myself asking many of the questions along with Tina Charles from TVGoodness.com and Jason Griffin, the TVaholic. Um, we're the, the main questioners, question askers, as it were. Uh, first up, we're talking with uh, Jeff Russo, the composer of Fargo, as well as many other things. Um, so, And you just heard a clip of his scoring for Fargo, the, the Fargo theme uh, from season one. And uh, so here's our chat with him. Well, first of all, I just wanted to mention that I was a big fan of The Unusuals. Oh. For that, like, I moment. Always, I always loved to hear that because that was, that was a, that was a, that holds a special place in my heart. That, yeah. that show, that score. Mm-hmm. It was really fun, and it, it like two months after it went off the air, everybody was like, "Hey, that Jeremy Renner guy." Yeah. And if only, but you yeah. know. Um, yeah, yeah. I was. I we were all we were all very sort of let down um, that uh, they didn't bring us back for the next season because I thought we really did it. I thought it was a really interesting show. Yeah. A really interesting take on the procedural cop drama with some sort of weird, quirky stuff going on. Yeah. You know, it was my, um, it was really a, 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 my entryway into, into doing a lot more film and television. Okay. So the guy who created that show, who hired me for that show, hired me for his next show, and then his next show, <laughs> which was Fargo. Yeah, well, you know, it's pretty good, you know. Yeah. Little show, it's a little bit of buzz right now. Right. Yeah, I think people are watching. I think people have, people have seen it. I think people are aware of the show. Um, yeah, you know, it was just uh, it's just it was a nice little um, way to get into the whole thing. You know. well, I'm glad that you liked it. Yeah, well, I, too. I just wish more people had watched it. Yeah. But, uh, no, I, for for Fargo, I just said to I guess kick things up. Um, first of all, I wanted to mention there's a couple moments of scoring that I. Like the, when we have the black and white cam and uh, Billy Bob Thornton's character is taking the guy out, and right. there's some really wonderful scoring that really sticks out, uh, as, as well as the, of course, the soundtrack, the Birdian's ass with the, with the classical and all, all of those different moments. Mm. But um, I was curious for next season when when they have the completely new story, do you plan to change up the approach? Well. We've already started talking about it. I think part of the approach will stay the same. You know, the the thing that I, I had to do in terms of scoring the um, the emotion and the contrasting beauty against the evil, um, using the orchestra and, and and really sort of lush big strings and horn woodwinds um, that I used in the first season, that will sort of stick. Um, how we treat the the other side of it. I'm still working on. Um, you know, they, they announced that the show takes place in 1979, so I'm sure there'll be some period aspect to the score. I'm not sure what that's going to be yet. I'm, I'm just beginning to like get into working on it. Because what I did in the first season, I'm going to do again, which is I wrote 60% of the themes that you hear, I wrote to the first script before we ever shot a picture. And that was the, we were talking about that on the panel, which is you know, a big part of, of being able to treat the show like a movie was to just write these big pieces of music that Noah, the, the creator, writer, would listen to and then write scripts and go look at scenery and go look at locations and sort of really got into the, the whole 
ideal of what the score was going to do for picture, what the picture was going to do for score, and music and, and the music and the picture in this particular case has a very symbiotic relationship, almost as if it's another character in the show. And I think we're going to continue on that sort of track for season two. What that ends up sounding like, I really don't know yet. Well, that's always the fun. So you're another leitmotivic approach. I'm sorry. Uh, another leitmotif approach for like characters and. You know, I think that a lot of the, you know, I know some of the themes that I created for the specific characters. I created a theme for Malvo, who is dead. Yeah. So his theme also dies with that. Yeah. You know, and and but the the place and the feeling, the themes that I wrote for that, that they might hold over. Certainly, the main theme will, will hold over, yeah. um, and I'm sure a couple of others will, will transition into the into second season, albeit in a probably in a different performed way, maybe a different instrument playing certain you know melodies and stuff. But I'm sure it'll it has its new and it has its old. Can you because it's all connected. I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, no, no. Um, well, can you just talk about? Um, you know, creating music for Fargo versus creating music for Power. I mean, you're doing that at the same time. How, how do you balance that? How do you work on all of I mean, that? It's, it's different. It's definitely different. You know, on the one hand, Fargo's score is very um, out front. I mean, when you hear music in Fargo, really that's all. There's no dialogue. There's no nothing. It's just music and you're looking at the picture. With Power, it's really a much more understated, subtle um, way of doing things. We, I really needed to, and they wanted me to create a sound, a, a, create a score that was very supportive of the vibe, um, but not be too um, heavy-handed emotionally. So I had to really not a lot of melody going on. There are a couple of little melodies for certain circumstances, but it's more of a sound thing that was for character themes and stuff. So. I sort of had to approach it from a completely different mindset. So when I was switching back and forth between writing Fargo and writing Power, it was like shutting off a switch on one hand and turning on another switch and like becoming a different It's kind of kind bipolar. Of it, I, and, and that plays to my personality. So, you know, I, I, have, I can have these ups and downs and I think that that happens to all people who are creative. You know, you have these bursts of creativity and then you can just sort of sit there and then be contemplative and then you go back again. That's sort of how it was with jumping back and forth between writing the two scores. Well, which character on Power did you really enjoy writing their theme for? Well, Ghost, who's the main character, has very two very definitive sides. I, I don't know if you've been watching the show. Watch some of it, yeah. So, he, you know, he walks this line between being good guy and bad guy, but the good guy he wants to be is cheating on his wife, so even the good guy's a bad guy. The bad guy is very loyal to his people, so even the bad guy is a good guy. So really, you have this character that has so many different sides that I can write pretty much anything, and it'll work for him because he has all of this stuff going on. So writing for him was really was really interesting, you know. So I, I really got to walk the line between the good and the bad, and the bad and the good being on both sides. So that, I think that's probably my favorite character to write for. I just love that the Fargo and Power are just completely different. Yeah. I, I mean, when when I got a call to go meet with the producers, and I saw the, one of the producers, Fifty Cent, I was like, oh, this is different for me as a writer, you know. 
but I, I, I come from a background that's totally dissimilar to the entire thing anyway, so, well, why the hell not, <laughs> right? Like, here's a guitar player from a rock band who's now doing this orchestral score for this one show. Why not put him in a, in a, a more urban setting and see what happens? And I think it worked out pretty well. Well, and Fun. then... Sorry. Yes, okay. Um, and then I look at, you know, hostages. And, I mean, that's a completely network and a completely different piece. And what I find particularly entertaining is this notion that there's these elements of thriller, of action, which would theoretically relate to Fargo. But even just the production differences there have to make it a very different writing experience. Well, you know, we talk a lot about in Fargo um, the use of silence and the use of not playing music to draw attention um, and to really, really build on on, uh, on emotion. Um, Hostages was the exact opposite of that, where it's like 37 minutes of music and it's just all, you know, action and trying to push the emotion the whole time. So in that way, it's totally, it's treated totally different. I have to treat it more like... Um, more like a canvas where I'm just trying to fill up the, the space. Whereas with Fargo and even with Power, it's like we're not trying to fill the space in that way. It's a totally different thing. I start in, in about two and a half weeks, I start working on a show called CSI Cyber. That's the, right, yeah. so again, it'll be sort of the same paradigm as Hostages. It's a network sort of cop drama, but with a twist because it's very cerebral. Um, in terms of how all these crimes, the crimes are born and bred inside a computer. So it's all sort of in the brain of the people who are thinking this stuff up. Is and it, I, I will look at that from a different perspective as well. Is there a time issue on um, network versus cable? Like, Absolutely. Do you, okay. I mean, in terms that? of scheduling? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, with Fargo and Power, like, I had a lot more time, well with Fargo I had months, I wrote all, I wrote most of the music months prior to, to even going in, and then the first episodes I had like four weeks to do, and then up until episode seven when it started to compress, but like with Hostages it was like, here's the picture, we need it in four days. <laughs> and so yeah. you, you really start going like, a, it's like a train that never stops until you're done, and then it stops. Can you can you talk about how you work with either you know sound design or music supervisors or the whole group to create the overall sound for you know whether you're choosing a pop song for some segment or you're going to be scoring it? It's different with every show. Um, Fargo, I, I you know the producer Noah Hawley um, is a musician. So we talk about music, like there are three people, and there is a music supervisor that sort of helps clear songs, but when we're talking about music for Fargo, it's Noah and me and the music editor, and that's pretty much it. We just talk about like, you know, if Noah has an idea, he has his iPhone and he plays something to me, and I'm like, oh, that's great. That's a great song. Like at the end of episode two, we used that crazy spoken word song. Um, he played that for me, and I was like, you're a fucking genius. I don't know how you come up with that, like where you found that and why you knew that was going to work so well. And he even said, why don't you take a pass at scoring this, just in case people are not. And I'm like, okay, but it's never going to do that. Like, that is a thing. So we talk about that. that that's how that process works. With other shows, it's like there's a... 
a conversation between producers and music supervisors talking about songs and producers and me talking about score and I usually don't get involved in the picking of the, of the songs as much. Um, a lot of times, you know, they'll, they'll say, how are we going to work score in here if it's coming out of a song or going into a song? And I'll have to sort of work that out. Um, other than that, it's, it's usually a pretty separated process. That was our conversation with Jeff Russo. Next up is James Levine, who has done many, many shows, but among them American Horror Story and Glee. He's also doing Major Crimes and Rosalian Isles, uh, lots of different shows for Mr. Levine. Of course, that, that was just the, um, the La La song from the season of American Horror Story, which he composed. Um, but yeah, next up is our chat with him. Hello. Hello. Just nominated for an Emmy about what two weeks ago? <laughs> July 10th. July 10th. Jan's birthday. <laughs> That's how I remember. Nice. Well, congratulations. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, um, I just wanted to mention, um, starting out, uh, that I, I just noticed one of the your credits was a Jimmy Neutron thing, and I have a big place in my heart for that oh, that's show. Funny. Cool. So I just wanted to. I love, I love that show. Yeah, it's wonderful. Um, my first question I had um, for you was, you have just so many shows that you do the score for. How and, and airing at the same time. Uh, how how do you manage that? It doesn't seem like it would be possible, but. Well, you know. Just because they're on at the same time doesn't mean they're all in the same phase of production at the same time. So, uh, fortunately, uh, a lot of these things, a lot of the shows that I do are in very, you know, are in various stages of production. So I might be, you know, close to the end of a season. So there might be usually there's some overlap in the different shows, but you know, generally speaking, I'm usually working on one or two things at the same time, like in, in like in full. <laughs> but I've always done that, and I love it. I just feel like, for me, it really, I, I like to be busy, and it, I feel like doing one thing really informs doing something else, and it keeps my mind working. If I was writing the same, if I had to write the same music for the same show, and that's all I ever did, I, I don't think, first of all, I would probably not be very happy, and second of all, I don't think it would serve the better good of all these shows, because writing a piece of light music for one show is going to inform what I decide to do on another show. It's just more experience, you know. It makes you wiser. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, sorry, I don't want to monopolize. I just, an American horror story with, with Stevie Nicks uh, making such a strong presence in this yeah. last season, did that inform any elements to your scoring, especially her connection with Misty Day, or did you mostly just let the soundtrack worry about that? No, I let the song be, I mean, how are you going to yeah. touch an iconic song like that? You know, yeah. I let the song be the song, and it was so intrinsic to her character. Mm -hmm. You know, I think 
we sort of played, you know, just technically getting in and out of the song and explore and how do you balance the two. But um, yeah, I think it was just it was a, something that Ryan wanted to do with her character, so it's pretty fun. That's cool. Well, and how does that uh, when you, when you have so much because on on Ryan Murphy shows their you know, soundtrack and then you Glee right yeah. is such an, a key element. How do you work with the other departments? Is it uh, different in each show, or is there a particular approach that you know? We, we've worked together a long time, so uh, on Ryan's shows, it's pretty consistently been the same since we did Nip Tuck together, which is, I, I work with him, and I work with the editorial department, and he watches, I write music very early for him. He doesn't like to wait until the show is locked and done, and then we, we don't do it at the end, we do it as they're getting the scenes cut together. So it's a much more collaborative process from the very beginning. Even, like for, even for Glee? Oh yeah. Like he doesn't want to, he doesn't like to watch um, cuts without my music in them, without the music that I've written for that scene. You know, Glee, we use themes now because we cataloged our themes, and by the end of a season, we've usually, usually established a lot of themes, so we have, you know, he can be like, oh, why don't we put this in here, and then the editors by that point know that for this character we're going to use this theme. Or well, I mean, because it, it lends, the music in, in the Brian Murphy shows, the ones that I'm familiar with, at least lends a lot of energy to, to what's happening. So that makes that makes sense. Uh, is that, a, did, is there a sim, was there a similar approach to a show like, uh, like Damages or, or some of the, the TNT major crimes? Yeah, I mean, those we do a little bit, we pretty much, the same um, producers that do major crimes, uh, they worked with us on Nip Tuck as well, oh, so okay, yeah. we got, they all got used to working that same way. So we, I like to write music early, that's just how I like to work. I don't like to wait until there's like two days left. Sometimes I have to do that, but my preference is to really start writing much earlier than most people do, typically on television. I mean, like on American Horror Story, when, you know, every season is something completely yes. different. So when do you um, start working with Ryan Murphy and like... Well, I start working when the scripts start coming out. It's usually a few months or a month or so before production starts, before they start filming. And then I just read it and try to like live with it a little bit, take my notes, we, you know, talk about ideas. I work with some of the editors and some of the other producers, and we start just experimenting and trying to come up with a sound for each season. So the first few months are really hard, actually, because we really are trying to find what the vocabulary of the season is going to be musically. And then once we sort of start getting there, it becomes really fun and you know, fast. But fun. I mean, can you give a little hint or anything of what you have planned for Freak Show? No. <laughs> no. Thought I'd try. That's what makes these things very hard to do. Like coming to a place like Comic Con where everybody's like, what can you tell us? I mean, it's so cool. I'd love to share it, but I can't. <laughs> well, but, I mean, it seems like it's going to have to be, like, the theme in general is it's going to be so fun to play with. Oh, there's so many things you can I mean, just, yeah, there's a lot of different fun things you can do with Freak Show and old 19, you know, 50s carnival. I mean, it's, it's, it's great. Are you inspired by the, the, the settings, like the time period? Do you try to tie into that? It really just depends, you know. Ryan usually has a very specific idea with regard to um, style and tone for music. So sometimes, you know, who would have thought you'd do a... I mean, the witch doing Coven and doing, like, a very electronic, you know, synthesizer-driven score for a horror show about witches yeah. wouldn't have been something that 
we initially you know, thought about doing, but it just wound up being something that worked. Yeah. So it really just depends. Do you find that you're more uh, uh, driven by melody or instrumentation or rhythm? It depends on the show and depends on the scene. Mm -hmm. you know, I think some characters are some characters and location and story points are driven by need a strong melodic idea. Some of them need a rhythmic idea, and others are just totally mood texture driven. You know, where you want to create a feeling without without necessarily being very melodic. So then it has. Uh, I'm unfortunate. I'm a scaredy cat, so I watched um, Coven. So my friends kept telling me how great the show was, but I haven't seen the previous uh, seasons, uh, so unfortunately I'm limited in my knowledge. Do you go for different um, orchestrations or like yeah, work with different watch, ensembles? Each season, each season is completely different. Okay. Instrumentation, uh, theme. Yeah. <laughs> the main theme is, is relatively the same, but, but the actual score for the episodes is totally different. And what were you nominated for? For um, original composition for a miniseries. For, for American Horror Story. Yeah, um, was it a specific episode? Yeah, it was um, the final episode of the season. Oh, uh, the Seven the Wonders. Seven Wonders. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Which is sort of, for me, it was musically a really great episode because it just, we brought everything together. And it was, by the time I got there, it was total freedom. You know, I had, like, I knew the music, so it was all under my skin. I had written really everything I needed to write. So this was just like, a, go for it, make everything. You know, all these different ideas and themes work together, different instruments, different sounds. Well, when, I mean, thinking about that episode in particular, the way that we travel and teach their minds, was that, do you try to, uh, I mean, obviously you have different themes that you're playing with, as you've already said. Um, do you identify certain, um, for these characters, when you're traveling with them in that episode, do you try, uh, try to key into, like, a, an instrument or, like, a simple idea for them, or do you more go to create a mood? Well, you know, I think that... The opening, the big uh, Seven Wonders sequence, it's sort of a, a combination. I had to, there were certain characters that I wanted to hit their character themes, so I did that. I also felt that if I hit every character theme, it's going to be confusing because it's going to be like, what is, who am I supposed to follow through this, you know, seven minute long sequence of them taking the test, you know? Yeah. Uh, so I keyed into the specific characters that I wanted to uh, focus on and made their themes the real highlight of the piece, but then also, Little sprinkled other little things in there so that we, you could connect, but maybe didn't like, you know, wasn't like this is this theme, this is this theme. Yeah, yeah. Is, I mean, do you Well, you sort of already asked the question a little bit, but I'm always interested in how do you work with, I mean, it's different on every show, but working with sound design, music supervisors, choosing a song as opposed to. Like, who's doing yeah. that type of stuff on uh, music, the various different uh, shows? The music supervisor would typically choose the song, or the people, sometimes songs are just written into the script, you know, like, Brian knew he wanted to use, you know, uh, Stevie Nicks, so that's how it And how do you work with them so that your score is going into the song, or did, oh, like, um, how much interaction do you have with do, the various... Usually uh, the editors will cut in the song into the, you know, get to where it's going to go in the show, and then... Well, they'll send that to us. And I have to work to like make sure I'm in the right key getting into it or yeah. getting out of it, so they don't hit each other like a train wreck, you know, mm -hmm. on the sound. And then the mixers ultimately will do the final mix, the mix stage where they put it all together, make it all fit. And shows that like I'm thinking of with American Horror Story, the we had that, that Halloween sequence where there's a lot more action. Do you find? Because I know a frustration I've heard in the past from composers is uh, the sound effects 
versus scoring and how side effects seems to always win. Is that something that you tend to run into in these bigger episodes? You know, actually, I must say that I don't have that experience on this show. Okay. On other shows, I've had it, but this ran the music cast. Everything is loud. <laughs> so the music, thankfully, is very loud. So it's cool. Our final composer for the for the roundtables this year at Comic Con is Christopher Young, who is a composer for many different films, especially genre films, particularly horror, um, as well as he recently the his recent TV credit was um, doing this the score for the pilot of Dominion, um, but usually he's a film guy. So this is our conversation with him. Uh, it wasn't on the cheat here, but are, are you the the composer for Dominion? I'm a composer for the yes for the yes. show Dominion. I was curious, because um, I'm a sci-fi fan, I enjoy all that, and one of the things I really appreciate about Dominion was the way that it was blending all these different elements, okay. being said, in the future, I was wondering how that impacts your scoring, if, if you're, you've taken that into your account. Uh, I would have to say that, when you say all the different elements, what do you mean by that? Oh, well, because they're... It, it, it's futuristic right. to some extent. It's dystopian in the you know the Blade Runner sense, but then there's right. also these with the different major cities coming in and uh, each having a very distinct identity, or even just the development of the religious world being right. more nuanced. I was wondering if that. Yeah, you know, well, I would have to say to the degree that the score was supposed to have kind of a sense of biblical significance without being biblical sounding. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. And so I think that was that was that was the requirements. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, I don't know if I succeeded in doing that. <laughs> what do you think of the show? I no, I reviewed it for the AV Club before it started, and I, and I really enjoyed uh, those elements because I am always looking for sci-fi that's interested in ideas, and. Um, Unfortunately, getting ready for Comic Con is news. Other things I haven't been able to keep up with the most recent episodes, but that was that was what I really keyed into, and I'm always happy to see that. On you know, what's, what's the vibe on the show? Is it amongst the sci-fi fans? You know, it really varies. I, I mean, a lot of my Twitter followers they are really enjoying the show. I mean, oh, they really like the um, you know the angel aspect, oh, okay, kind of cool. finally taking front and center. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm not doing the series. I only got to do the pilot. Oh, okay. So I have no idea what's going on with the music <laughs> for, the, for this episode. Other than the fact that the guy who's doing it, his name is Jeff Roma. He's supposed to be using my themes. I don't, I don't know if he is. I don't know if there's any similarity between what I did in the pilot and what's going on in the episodes now. Just in terms of anything. I mean, yeah. There's, there's so much that has to get done in just a short period of time. I'm going to kind of do a lot of soul searching, you know. Yeah. 
Yeah. Is yeah. that the big challenge as far as um, uh, composing for TV versus all the movies you've done? Yeah, I would say. Yeah, I haven't done a lot of TV. I've been very blessed. 90%. Yeah, the only can't television if I don't like movies, cable movies, a movie of the week here and there, uh, but never, never episodic television. Uh, and you know, I have to say that the, the, that score is probably one of my favorite so favorite. Okay. And the only reason being was because my aspirations were higher than the budget allowed. And uh, I mean, it was intended to be, would have been, I would have preferred it was performed by a big orchestra. And that's what we were talking about, but they didn't have the money for it. So it's the first actual score I've done with those intended for orchestra but just sits. You know, I, luckily I usually get a chance to, if I want orchestra, I, I figure out a way to have an orchestra play it. And, and the synths are just used, being used to complement it, not to replace it. So when I think of a score for Dominion, I think of a score that, that I like the idea of the music, I just didn't like the ultimate the realization. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, again, I have no idea what Jeff Rohn is doing now. I just know that it was like this movie show. I mean, like, lots of music, and I love the director. I think it's a great show. I think he's so extraordinary talented. I did one movie with him prior to this. It was called Priest. And had. Um, <laughs> He's married to Jennifer Connelly. Yeah, Paul Bettany. Paul Bettany. Paul Bettany. Yeah, who was in um, the movie that he was, was in, on, yeah, on, on, on Dominion. Yeah, he was in, you're right. He was, right. Yeah, yeah. He, was <laughs> yeah. Right. he was in the movie. I did not do that one, but I did that director's yeah. follow-up movie, which was Priest. And um, yeah, so. Priest, we had, you know, and that's that's the score. The two scores, yeah. that's the one I'm more excited about. I mean, it was monstrously big, and we recorded with choir and orchestra. It's, it's, a, it's a real deal. I'm I'm a violinist, and so okay. I, whenever I'm 100 million percent with you about okay. orchestras versus yeah, yeah, synth, sure. yeah, absolutely. Is that a particular um, sound that you? you like to go to, the, the full orchestral sound? You know, uh, it's the sound that I usually get asked to do. Okay. You know, uh, it started going way back when I first started. Uh, my, my MO was that go hire Chris, you know, for this low budget movie, mm -hmm. he'll turn over a pretty big sounding score. And, and all directors in those days wanted orchestras. You know, I worked for my first films were like Roger Warner, you know, low budget horror films like uh, like Hellraiser yeah. You know, and, and they didn't have much money for music. They were always impressed that I would show up with a big orchestra. So in other words, I like I love writing for orchestra. It's a real rush having that many humans perform the music. It's an incredible feeling. And what happens is that you know, if that's the sound that you're identified with, well those are the kind of calls you get. Having said that, I what I like about uh, what I liked about uh, 
sinister, for instance, and Deliver Us Amoeba is uh, that those were written for synths and intended for synths. So the first time I'd really done an all synth score, mm -hmm. in which I was trying to do an all synth score, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I was surprised, I mean, you know, that guy, the director, uh, you know, I was thrilled that he asked me to do a synth score because there's, there's usually guys that were known for doing Oh, yeah, Chris is the orchestra guy. Don't hire him if you're looking for a type score. Yeah. So I was thrilled that he did hire me. And he said, let's go for it. Let's try it. Is there a particular sound that you uh, would like to be able to co compose for if you got the opportunity? Well, I would say, you know, I've had, I've had the great fortune of working on all different types of the only kind of film I've not done, but then comedies, horror films, uh, dramas, uh, suspense films, sci-fi films, Spider-Man, all that stuff. Uh, Spider-Man. Okay. Animated films. Really mm -hmm. done animated films. So in terms of sound, uh, no, I'd, I'd love to try to do that. It's the only undiscovered territory. Well, and it seems like in an animated, you have so many more options because people are already, uh, there's already a barrier to the air. They're already uh, buying into, well, it's not real, it's a cartoon. And so that right. gives you so, they're not as limited maybe in what they'll accept in the story. Right. That's, that's true. That's very true. That's very true. And uh, of course, in animated films, again, the music gets to be pretty extroverted. It doesn't, it doesn't hide behind, it hide in the closet. A lot of dramatic directors are, are concerned with music that's really uh, focused and, and uh, precise in the message that it's trying to communicate might interfere with the, the, the flow of the drama naturally. So often drums I'm asked to hold back. Don't say too much. Say quiet. Whisper it. And that is the last of our 2014 Comic-Con Composer Roundtables. I hope you guys have enjoyed these. I certainly enjoyed uh, getting to talk with the various composers, and I hope I'll get to speak with them next year as well. Um, thank you if you're actually listening through this point. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Televerse. Mm -hmm.